Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 today. We're finally going to put a bow on Exodus. We walked through the whole book together and then doubled back, if you remember, uh, to cover the Ten Commandments more thoroughly. And so we are on Commandment 10. And then uh, next week, I believe we're going to start in 1 Corinthians. I had intended to uh, give you a little sheet with background information and all that fun stuff, but uh, illness has prevented me from doing that. And so I'll have that for you next week as we uh, get ready to dive into Paul's letter to the Corinthians. First of all, we're in Exodus, again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Uh, to remember, we're going to do some review. We've said that the law is a mirror of sorts that allows us to see ourselves as we really are in light of God's character. And so if you've ever been to a funny museum, you've walked in and those mirrors, they distort your head and make it really big or your midsection and they make it really small. And you find a mirror that you like and you can gaze into it and kind of have a good laugh and a smile. Uh, and I think the way that most of us view ourselves is a little bit like that funny museum. We have a distorted view of who we really are, about how good we are. And what happens when we take our own lives and we, and we stack it up against who God is, we see ourselves as we really are. Like we're not that good, especially in comparison to a holy God. We appear to be evil. And so, so the law functions as a mirror that shows us that we cannot mend the relationship that's been broken with God. And so as a consequence, the law drives us to Christ, right? Romans tells us the end of the law is Christ. It reminds us that we cannot be saved by our own good works, but only by Jesus' good works. Not saved by keeping the law, but by Jesus' keeping of the law on our behalf. And it's at that point when we realize that God has given himself to us, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel, that we begin to view the law as romantic. It moves from being a burden to being our birthright, something that we delight to keep, because the law is a way for us to love God back. Right? It's just like when you're, you're really in love with somebody, uh, you, you tend to say, your wish is my command. And for the Christian, that is how we view the law. We say, Father, your wish, that's our command. We delight to keep it. And part of our project here has been to remember the Ten Commandments, to memorize them. Uh, we remembered the, the guy on Stephen Colbert's show on Late Night. He was lobbying to have the Ten Commandments to continue to be uh, at the, oh man, I forgot the name, the legislative building where they make laws. Uh, somebody want to help me here? What's the building called? Courthouse. Thank you. Uh, uh, he wanted to keep the Ten Commandments in the courthouse, and he didn't even know them, right? Stephen Colbert was like, name them, and he was like, uh, do not murder. And he's like, all of them? We don't, we don't want to be like that. We want to know the Ten Commandments because they reveal to us the very character of God. And so uh, we're going to rehash those. We've done our little mnemonic device. This will help you remember, and you can teach them to your children and grandchildren. So uh, command number one, you hold up one finger. God is one. There is none beside him. Command number two, we've done this. We make kind of a uh, figure that we would have um, made a graven image. It looks a little bit like a dog or NC State wolf pack. Don't bow down or worship any graven images. Number three, we did the Hunger Games, like Katniss Everdeen. He always takes it and... You know, like, don't misuse the name of the Lord. Don't take the Lord's name in vain if you prefer the older English. Uh, command four, I cheated a little bit. We used eight fingers, but we're just pretending it's four, and, and we're taking a nap there. 
right? We're going to remember to rest in Christ's finished work for us in the gospel. Command five, we did the salute, honor your father and your mother. Command six, we made one hand a gun and shot the other hand. A little grotesque, but it's helpful. We said do not murder. Uh, Number seven, you take two fingers, you walk them down the aisle. We said the context for sex is a man and a woman in marriage. Do not commit adultery. Uh, Command number I'm getting ahead of myself here. Command number eight. This is my favorite one. I always forget it. Uh, In some countries, if you steal, they cut off your thumbs. And in some countries, they put you in jail. Right? Do not steal. And then the ninth commandment, we had one thumb talking to these fingers about this hand. Uh, Do not bear false witness. Or uh, if you're being sworn in, you could hold four hands and say, uh, you know, do not bear false witness. And so today is number 10. It's the last one we're going to learn together. You just take all of 10 fingers and you wiggle them like this and you say, you know, I really want that. I'm going to take it. A little evil and maniacal. Yeah, you could laugh if you wanted. It's do not covet. Main idea this morning as we get ready to approach this, the 10th commandment or the 10th word is desire God. That's what I want to exhort you to do this morning. And we're going to tackle this in two parts. We're going to talk about covetousness and then contentment. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would sabotage our every attempt to seem impressive or more together than we really are this morning. We ask that you would pull down the guards that we hold up to make ourselves look good so that we might be vulnerable to your prompting, your shaping, your filling. Father, bring us into your presence once more by your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. So again, context of the ten words is that Israel has been saved from slavery for sonship. They are at the mountain of God and they can't touch the mountain because it's holiness. Only Moses gets to go up and down. And now as they're standing at the base of the mountain, it is quaking and trembling. There is smoke and thunder and lightning. And amidst all of this, God speaks. And that's the most terrifying thing at all, as, of all. As you remember at the conclusion of the ten words, the people are going to say, Moses, you talk to us. You tell us the rest of the law because if God continues to speak, we will die. And so this is the context into which we drop as we hear God speak to the people. Exodus 20, verse 17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, most of us don't own donkeys or oxen, though I imagine some of you probably do. Uh, But let me paraphrase this for you anyway. Do not set the hope of your heart on getting things that belong to someone else. Don't lust after your neighbor's family or his wife or his house or his boat or his car or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God is prohibiting his people from being discontent with him and longing for the possessions of others. Again, the law is about the flourishing of God's people. If they would just go around, if we would just go around coveting and desiring what other people have as our own, we'd be really unhappy. They would tend only to evil. Because coveting is an idolatrous desire. It's a craving for something that you think will bring you satisfaction. It's a desire that that you have that you think, I can't be happy if I don't have this. 
Maybe it's, it's money or success or a good career. Maybe it's having a, a, you know, working out and having a great body. Maybe it's having great looks, a great house, family, car, wishing you were in a different stage of life, whatever it is. It's whatever you fill in the blank. If I could just have this, then I'd be happy. Then life would be good. Then I would be satisfied. Whatever that thing is, is something that you are coveting. And it's something that you have put in the place of God. A quick sidebar here. I don't want to condemn all desires, right? Uh, We're not Buddhist. Uh, Desires throughout Scripture are good. There's nothing wrong with desiring a wife or or a good job or a good education. The problem comes when desire morphs into idolatrous desire. So it's okay to want a good career. It's okay to want things. As long as those desires do not morph into ultimate desires or supreme desires. See, our idols have a way of sneaking up on us because typically the things that you worship in the place of God are not bad things, they're usually good things that you turn into God things. So you end up desiring above him. Everybody on the same page? And so coveting, I've tried to make it more simple even, is say coveting is wanting someone or something other than God to make you happy. And usually that someone or something belongs to someone else. See, this flies in the face of what God would have for us because God wants you to be satisfied in him, to seek him as your joy, to have him as your greatest desire. And when you covet, you are saying to God, you're not enough. You are not enough for me. I need something else to make me happy. When you make anything other than Jesus your greatest desire, anything other than Jesus your treasure, then you will live for that thing instead of Jesus because desires dictate how you live. Jonathan Edwards was right in stating that we always act according to our strongest desires. So, for example, say I want to get in some really great shape, right? Some of you are thinking, you're already in great shape, Justin. That's not true, right? Like, say I want to get in really good shape, but that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, what I want to do is eat chicken wings each and every day of my life. Clearly, there's a reason I'm not in great shape, right? But, but the truth is, when those two desires are at odds with one another, I'm going to act according to my stronger desire, which is for chicken wings, of course. You see, when our supreme desire is for something or someone other than God, we will worship that thing or give ourselves to that thing as a result and consequently face plant into sin. When we crown our desires for our lives as more important than God's desires for our lives, we are choosing to follow our hearts instead of God's word, and that will result in our ruin because we do not know what's best for us. Only God does. The Bible actually gives us a really great picture uh, of um, what covetousness looks like. Uh, and it's a, in a horrifying story of Amnon and Tamar. We've been looking at a lot of really ugly stories recently in Scripture. Last week, Naboth's vineyard. Uh, but this week, I would like you to turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to narrate most of the story, and then we'll, we'll stop and hang out in a couple verses uh, and move on. A little context, Amnon is David's oldest son, and so he stands to inherit the kingdom. Uh, he also has a huge crush on one of his stepsisters, Uh, which sounds a little bit like Tennessee, I know. Um, But you know, uh, the way they do things back then is David had a bunch of wives, and so uh, this is a girl from one of David's different wives, and it's it's just not considered gross. It's semi-normal. 
But this is what we're going to read in chapter 13, uh, starting with verse 1. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin. But it seemed impossible to do anything to her. And so what we see right away is Amnon is tormenting himself over this girl. He wants her so badly he's making himself sick. Have you ever felt like that about something? Just wanted it so bad that it made you sick? Maybe sick with worry that you might not obtain something? What is it that you want so badly that you can't imagine living without it? That the thought of not having it makes you sick? Whatever it is, that is what you covet. Coveting makes us sick with desire. Which brings us to a surprising truth about coveting is that you can actually covet what you already have, right? There's something in your life that you get sick with worry about when you consider losing it. Something that you hang on to dear life for. What is it that makes you sick with desire? What's your Tamar? What do you think you have to have to be happy? Amnon covets Tamar so badly that it begins to uh, affect his appearance. His dishevelment doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, One day he's hanging out at the devil's backbone with his friend Jonadab around the fire pit. And Jonadab looks at him and says, you look like a mess, buddy. What is going on in your life? He says, I'm in love. I love this. I'm in love with my brother Absalom's sister, right? It's not his sister. This is brother Absalom's sister. I'm in love with my sister, he says. Jonadab spills his drink a little laughing, and he says, look, you can get the girl. You just need a plan. And so then he proceeds to to lay out the plan for Amnon, and Amnon says, this sounds like a great idea. And so he, he puts it into motion, and he gets in his bed, and he pretends to be sick for a long time, and then King David comes to see him. And David, eventually being good father that he is, you know, anything I can do to help you feel better? And Amnon says, you know, I would really love some biscuits. And David's like, you know, I'll send somebody in. He's like, but you know what, I I really love the way my sister Tamar makes some biscuits, man. That's the best. Could you you send her up? She could whip some of those up for me. And David's like, of course, I'm a loving father. We'll we'll send for Tamar. And so uh, Tamar comes up, and she makes those famous biscuits. And then all of a sudden, he, he dismisses, Amnon does, dismisses all the other servants from the room. Uh, and, and he says, could you, could you, you know, I'm just so weak, I can't get out of bed, I, I can't really eat. Could you come into the bedroom so I can eat from your own hand? Could you, could you feed me? And then we read in verse 11. When she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come, sleep with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she cried. Don't humiliate me, for, for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't do this horrible thing. Where could I ever go with my disgrace? And you, you will be like one of the outrageous fools, one of the immoral men in Israel. Please speak to the king, for he will not keep me from you. But Amnon refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she, he raped her. Amnon's actions are the height of stupidity. Like like there doesn't exist a world in which he gets away with this. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody will clearly see Tamar's shame. And she points that fact out to him. I mean, she even says, ask the king. 
He won't keep me from you. We can get married. We can do this the right way if that's what you want. But Amnon doesn't believe her. And so he persists in his folly. Friends, I think that we are a lot like Amnon. That we covet what we believe that God won't give us. Covet believing he is keeping something good from us and so we act to make it our own. The foolishness that's in Amnon is underneath our coveting and it's underneath the original sin of our distant parents. Adam and Eve thought to get something they considered to be good and believed God to be withholding from them. And instead of finding satisfaction in the forbidden fruit, they found devastation. Likewise, when we believe that God is withholding good from us and and pursue something that we ought not, we will find devastation. Church, God does not withhold good from you. He gives you what is best for you. Do you believe that? Or do you believe he's stingy, trying to withhold from you something that would be for your good? Amnon believes God is withholding Tamar from him. He believes the king will keep her from him. And he takes matters into his own hands and plays both God and king. Amnon, like Adam and Eve and us, takes hold of what he thinks will bring him satisfaction. But look at what happens in verse 15. Right on the heels of his action, after this, Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred that he hated her with was greater than the love that he had loved her with. Get out, he said. The rest of the story finishes. Tamar leaves crying and shamed. Uh, Eventually, Absalom discovers what's going on. Uh, He waits and plots, and two years later, he kills Amnon. Uh, He's the same one who subverts and tries to usurp David's throne from him. Everything is a little disheveled. Amnon, though, since he's the character we're focusing on, loses everything because of his covetous heart. Pretty clear why this story didn't make it on the flannel graph, right? Don't miss this. The things we covet, bless you, Bryson, that's just so cute. The things that we covet, idols, always disappoint. The things we covet always let us down because careers and families, husbands, wives, children, and all the rest make terrible, terrible gods. Only God can give you the rest and satisfaction you've always longed for. Which tips you off to a truth. You can ask the question, what disappoints me? And that will help you discover some of those things you covet, some of, some of your idolatries. Uh, take marriage, for example. I think a lot of folks in our culture, and maybe I was guilty of it just a little bit, buy into the, this the one factor. There's one person out there for me, and they're my soulmate. They have the Jerry Maguire philosophy. Like, when I find them, it's going to be, you complete me. There's going to be tears, you know, shut up, and it's going to be wonderful. We're going to ride into the sunset, and it's just going to be a beautiful life together, puppy dogs, rainbows, kitty cats, the whole gamut. But the truth is, lonely, insecure single people become lonely, insecure married people. Your spouse cannot be your Messiah. And when you expect them to be, you will only find bitter disappointment. That's why so many marriages end in divorce. Folks look towards marriage as this uh, monumental thing in their life that will make everything all better. And when that doesn't happen, they look at their neighbor's marriage and go, they've got it great, they're all together. Look, they're smiling and have children. Right? They don't know that behind closed doors they're smiling and they, they've got children. It's a little crazy. 
But they long for something else. One idol less than down, so you move on to the next. People make crummy gods. Don't look to people to give you what only God can. Here's, a, I think, the best self-examining question to ask in regards to coveting. Am I content with where I am right now? Could I stay that way? If the answer is no, then you are coveting something or someone, whatever it is, and it's not going to be enough. It will disappoint you. Uh, Comedian Jim Carrey said it this way, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see that it's not the answer. What is the answer? What can make us happy and satisfied and and content? And quite bluntly, only relationship with God can bring you unassailable contentment. Only relationship with God, and, and that relationship can only be enjoyed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we, we were made for relationship with God, but our desire to follow our hearts and worship things that are not God rather than obeying the voice of God has resulted in our separation from God. I think one of the things we've learned as we've studied through the Ten Commandments is that our attempts to restore this relationship always fail. Like we've worked through each of the commandments and and most of us thought like, hey, maybe I've broken that one. I think I've kept this one or or kept this one. And as we've looked at ourselves and examined our hearts, we've realized that we've broken each one. That the law has been kind of a thermometer for us that shows us we're sick and that we need a good physician to make us better. That we really recognize that external behavior does not work because righteousness is not really about what we do but about what we desire. The 10th commandment makes this clear. Jesus also makes it clear in his exposition of the law. Uh, His point in the Sermon on the Mount is to uproot these false ideas that anybody can be made righteous by law-keeping. In it, Jesus tells everybody that the law is a lot harder to keep than you ever thought. You, You think you've kept the seventh commandment? Have you ever looked lustfully at a woman? Then you've committed heart adultery, commandment breaker. You think that you've kept the sixth commandment, that you haven't murdered anyone. Have you been angry with your brother? Well, you've committed heart murder. You are guilty. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then eventually he tops it all off at the end of uh, chapter 5 and verse 48, and he tells them, hey, this is what you can do to have right relationship with God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, Jesus is leaving the listeners of the Sermon on the Mount fearful. He wants them to be asking this question, and I believe they were. Who then can be saved? Who can have relationship with God? You're telling us that the best among us, the scribes and the Pharisees, that we have to be better than them? There's no hope for us. Who who can inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answered this on the front end of his sermon, right? He says, the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that they could never keep the law, never be perfect, never earn their way to God, those who put their faith in Jesus rather than themselves, those are the ones who inherit the kingdom. Those are the ones who enjoy relationship with God. You see, the law reveals to us just a a sliver of God's infinite goodness, a, a mere fraction of his blemishless character, and it's enough to drive us to put our faith in Jesus rather than ourselves because it shows us our own wickedness. You know your heart. 
And when the law exposes it, it sends you to Christ. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Friends, Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And he rose from the grave so that by faith in him, you can enjoy resurrection life with God. Jesus keeps the law in your place and gives you the blessing that he deserves. And Jesus died in your place on the cross, taking the curse that you deserve. This is how God ends evil without ending all people. And this is also why there is no other way to God but Jesus alone. No one else has done or can do what he has done. If you are a Christian, do you understand that God honors you as if you have done everything that Jesus has done? If you're a Christian, it means you don't, you're not trying hard and hoping that God will bless you. It means that you already have the blessing. That you're not obeying God for acceptance, but you're obeying the law of God from acceptance. It's a delight. If you know God, this also means that you are a child of God in his family, that you've been adopted as a son. Now, I think often in the West, we, we conceive of everybody as children of God for, for some reason, but that's, that's not the case. It's not the case biblically or culturally in Jesus' time. Right? Biblically, Ephesians 2 tells us that before we know Christ, we are all children of wrath and slaves to our sinful desires. And and during Jesus' lifetime, culturally, to uh, say that you were a child of God was preposterous. I mean, when Jesus calls God Father in the Lord's Prayer, everybody is astounded and offended. Why the offense? Because calling God Father assumes that you are his heir. I mean, this is what the gospel does for us. It takes slaves to sin and makes us sons of God. It makes us heirs. Um, And I want to show you this concept of why it's important to know that we are adopted and that we are heirs who inherit Uh, So I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 8, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time together. Uh, We're going to start reading in verse 12, uh, and then double back and uh, pick out some of the themes. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. When God gives you the gift of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are adopted into God's family. Because we are joined to Christ, his Father becomes our Father. And since his Father is our Father, we receive the blessings of sonship, and we become co-heirs with Jesus. And heirs inherit. Being an heir with Christ is a jaw-dropping, jump-up-and-down, beat-your-chest kind of amazing. It's awesome. Being adopted into the family of God means that you cannot lose the blessing of relationship with God. I mean, a worker, like uh, if you hire somebody and they do their job fine, they get to stay on, but if they screw up, you fire them. But you don't fire your sons. Like my kids don't get thrown out of my family when they mess up. 
If they could, it would have happened a long time ago. No, my children belong to my family not on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of their identity. And you see, if we are united with Christ, adopted by God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then we are as secure as Christ is himself. We belong to the family of God, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of our identity in Christ. This is staggering. This is amazing, scandalous, mighty, awesome, wonderful. This is the gospel of grace. Christian, your failures do not and cannot separate you from God because of your union with Jesus. You might toddle around like toddlers do in your walk with the Lord trying to be obedient, but I want you to know God is celebrating every step you take forward. You're not looking for an excuse to just yell at you and disown you, right? Your kid takes a few steps as a parent and then on the third step falls down, you don't go, see, this kid's so dumb, he's worthless, out of the family. That's not what God does. He loves you. He loves you as much on your best day as he loves you on your worst day. You cannot earn his favor. You cannot make yourself more or less a son than you already are. A quick note, Paul uses the language of sonship intentionally, right? He's lumping the men and the women together as sons, and that is quite revolutionary. Uh, he does the same thing in Galatians, and what he's doing is he's granting the legal status of heir to women as well as to men in a culture where women did not inherit. It's extraordinary. saying you are all going to inherit what God has given to you in Christ. And the greatest thing that we inherit is loving relationship with God. I mean, we, we have deep intimacy with the Father. And I think we get a glimpse of that intimacy in verse 15. If you want to look back at verse 15, uh, the second part of it says this, You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. You, you've probably heard uh, that it's best translated as, as daddy. Um, but I think Tim Keller does the right thing. He points out that's not completely accurate. That it's best to translate this word Abba as dada. Because it has no etymology. The word has no etymology, and, and so you can maybe think of it like this. It's a, it's a kid's word, but some of you are, are grandparents, right? And so you, you've had kids that have called you uh, like Mima, Pipa, Mama, whatever variation of Mama, Mami, Pipa, whatever. That sort of thing is what's going on with the word Abba, right? It, it's, it's baby talk. Like an eight-year-old doesn't say this word. It's one of the first words of an infant. And when infants cry for daddy, dada, they're not looking for, for milk or, or for food. They're looking to be picked up. They, they want to have their arms around daddy's neck. They want to experience the father. See, what happens when you become a Christian is you get a desire for God himself. You move from trying to use God to get what you want to all of a sudden just wanting God. You start to want relationship with God and you become overwhelmed with His presence. The Spirit causes us to cry out to our Father as infants who long to be held. Abba, Dada. I mean, it's the language of intimacy and this language marks a special bond. I mean, if you've ever had children, you know how awesome it is when your kid calls out to you the first time. Mama, Dada. 
Right? That's why we get them, try so hard to get them to say it, their first words. In my house, that's always dad before mama, all right? In Christ, we become the Father's delight. And he says of us, just as he does of Jesus, you are my beloved son, and I take delight in you. Now, what does all this have to do with covetousness? Everything. See, the reality of our adoption into the family of God through the propitious work of Jesus is the only thing that can bring us unassailable happiness. When you set your heart on the wonderful truth of your adoption in Christ, you will find yourself filled with both gratitude and content. You will be content only when you make God your supreme desire. Christians become covetous and discontent when we forget who our Father is and who we are. It's a little bit like drowning. When you drown, you don't die from holding your breath. You die from breathing in water. It's the same with spiritual breath. When you're not breathing in the glory of God, you will find something else to breathe in. And when we forget who our Father is and who we are, we are trying to find another source of life that cannot give life to us but only death. When we forget the gospel, our desires become disordered and our contentment spoils into covetousness. Friends, you must fight for the contentment that's been secured for you in the gospel. And thankfully, uh, Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to help us rest in his finished work, especially when things are hard. hard. Look back at the, the second part of verse 15, and I'm going to read down a little bit of ways in Romans 8 again. It says this, You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the fullness of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches the heart knows the Spirit's mind, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. These verses explain a lot to us about our experience as Christians. We see that in the Spirit, we cry out to God. And the word cry is a word of distress. There's a word of distress throughout the New Testament. It's the same way that when Peter is walking on water and he falls in the water, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me, Lord, help me. It's a cry of distress. We also see that 
Paul sums up the Christian life with this word groaning over and over again. In verse 22, we see creation groan because everything in the world is not as it should be. It's subject to decay. I mean, death is not natural. You can feel that at every funeral you attend. In verse 23, we see Christians groan for the new heavens and the new earth, for their new resurrection bodies. Because now our bodies deteriorate. They get old and experience pain. In verses 26 and 27, we see the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans. And don't miss the fact that verse 26 assumes that the Christian life, your Christian life, is a continual experience of weakness. And it's through that weakness that the Holy Spirit rescues us and grows us. It is the Holy Spirit who in our suffering reminds us of our sonship and compels us to cry to our Father, Abba. It is the Spirit who causes us to groan for and long for God above all else. It is the Spirit who enables us to grow towards the Father in our suffering instead of away from Him. Being adopted into God's family, being a Christian, does not mean that everything is going to go great in your life, but it does mean that everything that happens to you happens for you and for God's glory, even if you can't figure out how it's for your good. I mean, Romans 8.20 is one of those great promises of the gospel. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. But I think Paul's imagery that he's been evoking throughout this section help us to understand that promise. See, explicitly in his use of language of crying and of groaning and pains of childbirth, I think he's giving us a picture of the Christian life that looks a little bit like childbirth. You know, and do you know the first word of almost all kids? Wah! And you know what that means? It means like, what is going on? Why is this man slapping me? Why are there sharp objects all around? Why is there blood everywhere? Why is everything upside down? Why is it so cold? Now, the baby doesn't know what's going on. But if we could explain it to them, we might say something like this. I know everything is turned upside down and it's cold, and it seems gruesome. But everything that is happening is happening for you. Paul is saying that when the Spirit comes into our lives, it's like being born. And when we are born again, the Spirit ushers us out of darkness and into light. He turns everything right side up and assures us, despite our confusion, that everything is happening for us. What I want you to see from this section of Romans is that the Christian life is a hard and bloody affair. But I also want you to see that the Christian life is a satisfying life. It's the good life. Uh, To continue with the illustration of childbirth, if you take any baby, and we did this with Elliot, um, not with Owen because he almost hit the floor, he came out flopping like a fish, but, but with Elliot did it, so I've seen it happen. But if you take a baby right after they're born and you put them right there on mama's tummy, skin to skin, uh, they do something, even though they've never been outside of the womb, called the breast crawl. And and what they do is they will make their little baby way up to um, mommy's breast and go right right on and attach and start to suckle and get that food and provision. It really is amazing. And, And despite the craziness that's going on around them, they're content and they are at rest. See, likewise, when you come to the Father through Jesus the Son, the Son, the Spirit brings you into satisfying fellowship with God. 
in Christ, you are able to be content no matter what is going on around you in your circumstances. Because the secret to contentment is supremely desiring God above all else. And the great thing about desiring God above all else as a Christian is that you have Him. And even though you have Him, you want more and more and more. Church, we must learn and relearn this gospel lesson daily that Jesus is all satisfying and that Jesus is more than enough. In Him we get God. Friend, when is Jesus going to be enough for you? Perhaps you know that Jesus should be enough, but that's not enough to keep your heart from wandering. Uh, I want to let you know this experience is, is common. Christian life is indeed a bloody affair. There will be times where it feels cold and dry and that God is nowhere to be found. But we encourage you that feeling God's absence is evidence that he was present. Moreover, let me exhort you to pray in the Spirit and to ask God to allow you to experience your sonship. Uh, the, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin likened our relationship with God to a father walking along the road with a son when suddenly he picks the boy up and spins him around and he kisses him and he says, Son, you know that I love you. I will never leave you. I'm so proud that you are mine. Goodwin asks this question. Was the boy any more his son in the moment when he was being spun around than he was when he was simply walking along the sidewalk the moment before? He answers, legally, no. But in that moment of spinning and being lifted, the lift felt his sonship in a new way. So it is with the presence of God. The fullness of God's Holy Spirit makes us feel the love of the gospel. And salvation will, goes from being a doctrine that we believe to an embrace from the Father that we experience. Friends, we must just walk along with the Father so that we can experience those moments of being lifted and twirled around. Remain steadfast. Trust the Spirit to help you cry out to God, to help you groan for God. Let me tell you, you will experience the reality of the Father's embrace only when you draw near Him through prayer, through the study of His Word, and through engaging with His people. And James tells us, draw near to God, God, and He will draw near to you. Friends, this is the antidote to our brokenness, to our covetousness. The antidote to sin is relationship with God through Jesus Christ who died for our sin and an insatiable, insatiable desire for him. him. I'm always astonished with people who say they believe in God but live as if happiness is found in giving him only 2% of their time. Is that you? Give him all, all attention. Do not covet things in God's place and then wonder why he feels distant and you feel empty. Feel empty. Draw near to him. See and savor Jesus. Treasure the gospel. God. Rejoice in your sonship. Do not forget who you are and do not forget who the Father is. Supremely desire God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that Jesus frees us from the tyranny of the twisted desires of our wicked hearts and liberates us from darkness and darkness. And we thank you that in our submission, his lordship, we lose the chains of our sin and enter into the joy of sonship. We thank you that your Holy Spirit works through our weakness and brings us into deeper intimacy with you. Father, we ask that you would help us to experience you as we worship you together this morning, as you as children, those that have been adopted by grace through faith into your holy family. This is what it is to truly live, to truly be happy, to know you, the only living God. We pray in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen.